Hello and welcome into another episode on the Labumba Pastor's Blog. I'm Masumba Jonathan. Today's lesson is entitled Act 6, The First Problem. This is a continuation of our series from the book of Acts. We're going to begin by reading from Acts chapter 6 from verse 1 to verse 7, which tells us this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So as we continue on in Acts chapter 6, we're going to find that I think the main reason for Luke giving us this detail is to introduce us to Stephen and Philip, who are going to play a prominent role in Luke's record of the book of Acts as we continue on in the immediate following details recorded in the, the narrative of the book of Acts. But there's some details within this story that I think are worth noting and worth considering what the implications of them are. So with that being said, um, I want to begin by narrating a, a conversation I had with my dad some time back. My, my dad has been a, a pastor for about 30 years in a very small community, a town of about 2,000 people. And so the average size of his membership in those years has probably been between maybe 10 to 15 people. I was once having a conversation with him about potential new people coming to church, and he replied, just kind of joking around with me, but what he said was very true. He, he said something like, I'm very okay just pastoring 10 people, because a pastor to 10 people only has to deal with 10 people's problems. But a pastor to 100 people must deal with 100 people's problems. That's a very true reality. Though we are redeemed by Christ, we don't always behave like Christ, do we? There are many sinful things we do that cause conflict with our brothers and sisters. And sometimes even when we've done sinful things to lead to conflict, we continue in sin instead of being humble, asking for forgiveness, and seeking reconciliation. There's also sometimes immaturity and lack of knowledge that also causes us to do things in the wrong way. So for sure, churches will always have problems that they must deal with. This is the first recorded example in the church's history of an internal challenge. The Hellenists were Jews who were not native to Judea. They were descendants from Jews who had been dispersed from Israel at some point in its history. 
There was animosity between the Jews who came from Israel and their relatives who came from the surrounding Gentile nations. The Hellenists, as their name suggests, had adopted many things from Greek culture. So, similar to the Samaritans, they were looked at as potentially impure people. A complaint came from this segment of the church that their widows were being neglected in the distribution of food aid. The Bible doesn't make clear whether this was actually the case, if they were really being neglected, or if it was just the perception of the Hellenists. People who have been treated with prejudice in the past are often sensitive to anything that might be perceived as prejudice in the future. But whether it was really happening or not, the problem was there. So now we arrive at an example that informs us about God's will for how the church is to function in a way that was not yet clearly stated. The apostles state that it would be wrong for them to give up their assignment of preaching the word and prayer to serve tables. That expression of serving tables can refer to either dealing with financial administration, money matters, or the actual serving of food at a table to someone. The apostles tell the congregation to choose seven men from among them of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. I would say these men give us the first example of the role of a deacon in the church. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which simply means a servant. The qualifications of deacons are detailed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, from verse 8 to verse 13, where we read, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Some say that these men in Acts 6 were not deacons, since both Stephen and Philip were well-known preachers, and the ability to teach is not part of the qualifications of a deacon. It is part of the qualifications of an elder, which is described right before this description that we just read about qualifications of a deacon. But just because a deacon's role is not to teach doesn't mean that they don't have the ability to do so. There is some dispute about whether women can be deacons or not. It's a bit unclear in the text. The strongest argument against it is that it says deacons should be the husband of one wife. Obviously, that's impossible for a woman to do. I think the strongest argument for it is that the role of a deacon doesn't include anything that a woman is expressly forbidden by Scripture from doing. God says women are not allowed to do this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. But deacons, as, as described there, are not in offices of teachers or overseers, but rather they have an office of serving the church. 
Paul mentions a woman named Phoebe in the book of Romans, describing her with the same word um, that was also that we get deacon from, diakonos. However, I can't prove this means that Phoebe was a deacon, since being called a servant doesn't necessarily mean you were officially a deacon. It might just be describing someone as so-and-so serves in our church. Now back to the text of Acts 6. The names of the seven men chosen are suggestive about whether the Hellenists' complaint was legitimate or not. All seven of the men had Greek names, showing that they were most likely Hellenists themselves. I think this demonstrates that the church wanted to show, even if there had been some Hellenist widows neglected, like they had complained about, that this was definitely not intentional prejudice, but rather just an accidental mistake. Stephen and Philip we know well because of what's recorded about them in the Bible, but we don't know anything for certain about the others, except that they all fit the description given by the apostles. With that rather long preamble, I want us to focus today on what the apostles' response shows us about the central aspect of the church's fellowship and ministry. Does the church have programs and activities? Should churches have programs and activities? Yes, it's clear we must in order to fulfill the commands of Scripture. For example, we are told to remember the poor. We are told to care for widows who are truly widows. We are told that pure and undefiled religion before God is to minister to orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves undefiled by the world. But we should not fail to understand that the proper practice of all of our programs and ministries must flow from our fellowship and saturation in God's word. When Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he echoed the example of the other apostles here in Acts 6 about what was the most important part of church assembly. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, we read this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. What do you see Paul telling Timothy he should focus on in the gathering of the church together? The public reading of scripture, because everyone is supposed to hear it, everyone is supposed to know it. How, If you don't know it, how then can you fulfill the responsibility given to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which tells us we must test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So everybody needs to hear God's word, to read God's word themselves. And then we see that Paul says Timothy was to devote himself to teaching the word, to explaining the word. Everything in a healthy church will always flow from that church's exaltation of God's word in its fellowship. The Bible is what sets us apart in the truth. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is what sets us free from lies that we have believed, in ways that we've been deceived. John 8, verse 31 and 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Bible is what transforms us by renewing our minds from our former way of thinking. In Romans 12, verse 2, we read, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We see from that verse that the Bible is also what teaches us how to know God's will in all matters. That is why I said a healthy church will always focus most on studying and teaching the Bible when it assembles. And every ministry it does will flow out of this biblical instruction. There's an interesting contrast where you can see churches that emphasize programs, music, and charity, while completely neglecting the exposition of the Bible. You will find such congregations then rely on emotional experiences for their basis of their relationship with God, which makes them people tossed about with every new wind and wave of doctrine. It's very important that we understand these priorities as demonstrated to us in this story in Acts 6. We get our marching orders from God's word. If we fail to follow those orders, we can't really claim we are following God or following God's word, nor that we focus on God's word. And if we go marching off without reading our orders, everything we do will be of ourselves and lacking in God's power. God bless you all.